0: maybe not in the apple time. I think it may still be table for Apple times. So that's good. We're still in time. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. It just a, at some very important announcements. So we have, uh, as you know, from in the midst of the uh, COVID pandemic, uh, uh, we want to follow our own guidance. And uh, one of the guide, one of the things that we want to do is to make sure that our health care providers uh, are uh, stay safe and healthy. Uh, so we will be uh, over the next six weeks, at least and things may change, we're going to be hosting grand rounds virtually uh, for, for all of you. And uh, we will still have it. We have a number of great speakers. Unfortunately, we have a platform that allows for such a thing and in terms of you know how to do it. You can still claim your, your MOC credit and your CMEs, uh, and you can do it virtually. And that's the good news about what's going on here. Um, a couple of other things about uh, uh, COVID-19 that Connecticut Children's uh, is preparing uh, for, uh, for the pandemic. Uh, we have a task force that meets uh, daily uh, for a couple of hours and, and the main, uh, the main uh, charge to the task force is to develop scenario planning so that we, uh, we know what to do if, if a kid shows up in the emergency department, if one shows up, if three show up, If five show up or 15 show up, and they're a little, you know, each one is going to be a little different. Uh, Also, what happens if a child needs to be hospitalized in one of our floors? What happens if a child needs to be hospitalized in our critical care unit? What if a mother comes into Hartford HealthCare, one of our sister institutions, and and delivers a baby? And what do we do with that baby in the NICU? What if somebody uh, a child shows up in, in one of our partner hospitals, Danbury, Norwalk? We had a scenario like that yesterday where you know, I got a call, call at six in the morning uh, where there was a nine year old immunocompromised who had severe respiratory distress and fever and, and was you know lived in Westchester county, uh, and certainly we had to rule out uh, COVID19. We did roll it out, so that 's the good news. What happens if we have to transfer that kid? What about the transport team, and how do we do that? How do we do the transportation? All those things have been worked out. We have a very clear action plan, and we're going to do a, uh, a simulation uh, this. I think I believe this this coming Friday to make sure we we can tackle this in many many different ways. We're also coordinating care with Hartford Healthcare, with Trinity Healthcare, uh, with with Yale, with all our hospitals, because at some point we will be involved with with all of them. Uh, so these are things that we're prepared for. Uh, obviously, the uncertainty of 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 how this you know where this is going remains remains an issue if we uh if we follow the news from our italian counterparts uh and and in northern italy which has a very good health system they, they are clearly overwhelmed uh, primarily the adult system the biggest risk has has been mentioned by by many health authorities would be the individuals over the age of 65 certainly those over the age of 75 and certainly those that are over the age of 75 with with a, with known health conditions and and so because of all of that uh, there are certain things that have changed in Connecticut Children's and the University as well. The, for the University, for the UConn Health, uh, for the medical school, they have uh, uh, instituted a policy for the next for the for the next 60 days. There is really no no travel for any of our medical students, any of our residents or fellows, and that's in place right now. That is clearly affecting uh, many of the conferences and things that you know where people used to be going. This, you know, the springtime is one. We have ESPR, we have PAS, most of those have been canceled. PAS is still on, but will probably be canceled at some point. And that's the first thing. The Connecticut Children's has instituted a ban on, on work-related, work-sponsored travel uh, for any of our employees, any of our faculty. Um, we have not uh, put a, a ban in place for, for PTO or vacation time, uh, at least not at this point. Uh, my recommendation is still for, for all of you to stay put. This would be a time where, uh, the recommendation is is to you know stay local. Uh, it is entirely possible if you're traveling internationally that you may not be able to come back. And I'm going to echo Tony Fauci's recommendation. The head of NIID is do not go on cruises, please. I mean that would be it's a bad idea. You know you're going to be stuck somewhere. And uh, the the population of our cruise, uh, our cruise population is usually over 65. So again, I you know please do not go on a cruise ship uh at least over the next three months you can maybe do it in late august would be fine if you're not concerned about hurricanes around that time so i uh, you're not going to get me on a cruise ship before or after that's just my own just my own thing but you know but some of you love it please don't do it so again we're if the uh we have a, an intranet page with information feel free to reach out to us uh, just be you know be careful and of course wash your hands as much as you can you know this is the other way of doing it but washing hands is perfectly Reasonable. Um, I see Dr. DeMerchi staying at least one chair away from Dr. Ratson. That's a good idea. Uh, and, and so this will be a time that, you know, my, the, the, the Colombian way of doing things, which is we hug a lot and kiss, we, we're probably not going to be able to do that for, for a long time. So with that, I'm going to ask Dr. Wagg to introduce our speaker. Thank you.
1: Good morning. I have the uh, honor of introducing our next speaker, who is also the Newest member to our provider staff at Elite Sports Medicine is Alison Crapo. She uh, started with us in the fall and her first uh, monumental project was the birth of her son, Archer, And uh, earlier. And now she is back from maternity leave and she's full speed ahead uh, in clinic and the OR. Her training uh, is extensive, uh, medical school at Georgetown, residency at Stony Brook, uh, Arnold Palmer's Children's Hospital for a pediatric, uh, sport, or pediatric fellowship, and then um, Boston Children's and Harvard for a, an adult and pediatric uh, sports medicine fellowship. Her practice started in Virginia. She's been there for several years, very successful practice. In addition to taking outstanding care of her patients, she's also been involved in multiple organizations, including the uh, Pediatric uh, Sports Medicine uh, Research group prism and uh we're so lucky to have her today she's going to speak to us about the female athlete a very relevant topic Uh, i've seen this the females in sports grow immensely in my career i it i was kind of looking back to see when things happened did you know that that the first woman to run the boston marathon wasn't allowed until 1967 in iowa girls basketball the six on six where three women can't cross half court because it's too rigorous to run the whole court. Um, and that, that wasn't, that didn't end until the early 90s. Um, now in high school, it has moved to the point where 43% nationally of all athletes are female, which has improved or grown significantly from before. Anyway, uh, one last detail, what sport in high school has the highest growth of female participation. Yay, someone's been <laughs> reading the news. Now, yeah. yeah. so without further ado, Hi. Okay.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me here. Um, I did not realize we could plant people in the audience to answer our questions <laughs> correctly. <laughs> so um, today I, I tried to pick a topic um, that would cover sort of a whole bunch of different areas. Um, the, most of the research and most of the things that we hear about is the about the female athlete. And then we have a lot of talks and things about the pediatric athlete. Um, combining them was sort of a, an interesting experiment. So um, <laughs> actually, as Dave was saying, uh, I'm, I'm gonna go, go over a brief history of women in sport Uh, And then go over some female specific concerns so basically how things like the female athlete triad or as we now talk about it relative energy deficiency in sport uh, relates to our athletes we will go over stress fractures ACL injuries shoulder instability femoral acetabular impingement, and concussion. And then I'm going to give a brief plug uh, about some talking points for early sports specialization as um, people may be getting questions from their patients or patients' families. So as we just discussed, um, well into the 1900s, uh, it was believed that physical, intense physical activity was harmful for women. Uh, and they thought that this would increase masculine behavior, harm our reproductive health, and cause anxiety. So women were essentially protected. They were allowed to participate, but in non-competitive sports. In fact, these were called play days, where basically participation was emphasized over competition. And this lasted uh, for a long time, 1920s up through the 1960s. Uh, It was just about participating, but not not too aggressively. most people will point to Title IX of the Education Amendments Act in 1972 as really the turning point for women's sports. Um, this uh, statement, basically, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program receiving federal financial assistance. So this included and mainly, uh, focused on the colleges, but also included high schools and down to the elementary school level. So really it was the the change in college sports that sort of trickled down into into increasing participation for women across the board. Um, There's actually, looking through the history, there was a sort of separate uh, association set up for women's athletics, which was the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. Um, This organization existed from 1971 to 1982. Um, It really placed priority on academics, so uh, they did not allow scholarship stability. There was a minimum GPA, which for women to participate was higher than for what the NCAA held men to. Um, This organization peaked, uh, or at its peak, there were national championships held in 19 sports with 960 colleges and universities. Um, but what I found interesting was that 90% of these teams were coached and administered by women. Um, unfortunately, this organization ultimately was sunk basically battling the NCAA. Um, and so when we talk about the NCAA, it's been around for a very long time. Dating back into the 60s, there was generally a lack of interest in women athletics. Um, the postseason tournaments were for male sports only. Um, there were multiple amendments and it's still continuing through this day, um, lawsuits going up against Title IX trying to limit its scope. So one of the more famous ones were the tower amendments, which were proposed to limit the scope of Title IX uh, equality to non-revenue generating sports, but uh, ultimately the NCAA um, did gain women uh, women's sports and members. They lured members away from the other organization. And the f- first national championships for division one women's athletics in the NCAA was actually held in 1981, which I was sort of shocked at. Um, participation in women's athletics has since tripled. Um, and really that's at the collegiate level On uh, the lower level it's, it's grown exponentially. Um, but the leadership has changed. So, right now in women's sports, only 43% of coaches are female, 18% of athletic administrators, and 17% of athletic directors. So, there's still significant underrepresentation uh, among the leadership in women's sports, despite the fact that our participation has grown so much. So, what are the benefits of sports? Why do we want our young girls to participate in sports? Um, There's been uh, multiple studies that have shown that uh, females who participate in sport have better grades, um, and that's really at the high school level. They're less likely to have unintended pregnancies. They have higher self-esteem and self-confidence, lower levels of depression. They're actually more likely to be employed full-time after college graduation. That applies to collegiate athletes. Um, And they're more likely to exercise into adulthood. And arguably, maybe that's the most important thing. So we know that sexual dimorphism and sex-based differences exist throughout the musculoskeletal system, um, but there's really been sort of limited uh, study based looking at these sports injuries and how they differ between males and females, but we know that there are differences in the incidence of various types of injury, there's differences in the presentation, and there's differences in outcomes, and there's a lot more work needed to study this. Uh, So it has been looked at actually in the pediatric athlete so looking at sports related injuries just to get a sense of what our kids are doing looking at females versus males age 5 to 17. um, It was found that females actually sustain more overuse injuries, they have more soft tissue type injuries and more Mm -hmm. lower extremity and spine injuries, whereas our male athletes have more traumatic injuries. Um, more bony injuries or fractures, and they're more likely to have upper extremity injuries. Um, and interestingly, though, the ACL injury percentage between males and females in this age group uh, is is almost equal. So certainly, for the males, um, we always think of football. So football is sort of a is one of the main differences when you're looking at males versus females. That's the one sport that's not equal between the two. Otherwise, you know, when you talk about things like soccer and basketball, you can compare them side to side. So looking at some female-specific concerns. So we'll start with the female athlete triad, and I apologize, Dave, I'm gonna talk about the triad for now. (laughs) Um, But This was initially described in uh, 1992 um, to include three items. So disordered eating, amenorrhea, and low bone mineral density. Uh, And you, at this time, the diagnosis, you had to have all three components. Over the years, um, this has been revised. And so in 2007, they really made it more of a spectrum to say, instead of disordered eating, we talk about low energy availability uh, with or without disordered eating. Uh, And then there can be just menstrual dysfunction uh, and low bone mineral density but you're not required to have all three of these components. So we think of the female athlete triad primarily affecting athletes in sports where there's subjective judging, endurance or emphasis on body leanness and weight. So in sports like figure skating, gymnastics, dance, there's actually a subjective judging component that's intangible. And so there's, a, there's certainly a pressure um, to look a certain way. Uh, long and middle distance running, wrestling is a big one with the weight classification. And I'll just mention that uh, this female athlete triad has since morphed into something a little bit different to include actually some of our male uh, athletes, even though, as we said, wrestling is the largest growing female sport, Um, cheerleading, pole vaulting, and lightweight rolling. Uh, It's really difficult to know the prevalence. Um, There's a couple issues that sort of stop us. One is a lack of education of coaches, parents, athletes, and healthcare professionals about this. Um, There's also varied presentations and there's a lack of reporting. So energy availability, what is that? Basically, it's a calculation of your calories consumed minus your calories expended divided by your lean body mass. So the lean body mass part of the calculation is the part that makes this really complicated to calculate. Um, so, first, we can look at BMI as sort of a rough estimate, um, but as we know, that d- d- BMI doesn't always reflect what your body composition looks like. Um, so, it's easy to pick out if you have a BMI less than 17.5, then those athletes are very likely to have low energy availability. Um, but essentially, 45 calories or kilocalories per uh, kilogram of lean body mass is low energy availability and less than 30 uh, kilogra- kilocalories per kilogram is associated with the most negative effects of low energy availability. Having this increases your risk of injury by two to fourfold. Uh, and so it's important for us as healthcare professionals to screen for disordered eating in our youth athletes, um, particularly female, but also male. Menstrual dysfunction is what it is, so just briefly the definition. So normal or eumenorrhea is having a menstrual cycle every 28 days. Amenorrhea, uh, there's primary amenorrhea, which is absence of menarche after the age of 15, versus secondary, which would be cessation of menses for three consecutive cycles. And then somewhere in between is oligomenorrhea, which is basically less than nine cycles in a year or a cycle every 35 days or so. Um, So the part of the female athlete triad that pertains to amenorrhea is functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. Essentially, too much weight loss or exercise or low body weight uh, will cause unpredictable GnRH release, which then will affect our LH and FSH release, and this disrupts estrogen release from the ovaries. Um, And the most important part of this is that the estrogen deficiency can cause decreased bone mineral density. So it's important if you're screening athletes or patients um, that we assess for other causes of menstrual dysfunction. But I think the key is education. So when you start, when we start asking patients about this, um, I think it's very common that again these lean body sports like uh, dancers and figure skaters um, will often think that it's normal to not have their period. Um, they they. They know their friends don't get them or their friends don't get regular periods. And this has essentially been accepted as normal among both the athletes and the and the parents. Um, so I think education, again, is our key to say that this is not normal, this is a problem. And why is this a problem? Again, because it affects bone mineral density. So um, there's basically low bone mineral density. It's a spectrum of disorders um, ranging from just low levels to uh, frank osteoporosis. Uh, We use DEXA as a modality or diagnostic modality of choice. Um, The criteria for adolescents and pediatric patients are different than adults. And I will not even pretend to go into (laughs) what these are, Um, but basically low bone mineral density is less than two standard deviations. below but really for a female athlete anything more than one standard deviation below the mean is abnormal and should be evaluated Um, also we should evaluate our female athletes with a history of stress fracture or stress reaction the major issue is that again in our patient population if we're dealing with adolescent teenagers and they have low bone mineral density now then they're gonna have major issues later on in life. So 90% of your peak bone mineral density is reached by age 18. Peak accrual is between the years of 11 and 14. And after that, or after age 18, then our bone mineral density may only be lost or maintained. So if these kids in their most vulnerable years are not uh, accruing or actually losing bone mineral density, then we're gonna have major issues, or our adult colleagues will have major issues on their hands um, when these kids get older. So we must educate our athletes on adequate nutrition. Um, I'm sure that some of our colleagues have different recommendations, just throwing out numbers as far as when families ask, what what should they shoot for if we do calcium and vitamin D supplementation? Um, The general accepted levels are for adolescent patients are around 1300 milligrams of calcium. Um, and 600 uh, international units of vitamin D for a normal and for anyone with low vitamin D levels or deficiency, 1,000 a, a international units or higher depending on their deficiency. So treatment of the female athlete triad, um, basically the uh, increasing their energy availability and getting them to an adequate weight is really the best option to deal with all of the the uh, problems that come along with the female athlete triad. Um, oral contraceptive pills are, are now sort of discouraged as first-line treatment for treating amenorrhea or low bone mineral density. And this is certainly a challenge in some of our younger athletes. So uh, our peripubertal female athletes um, who haven't started their menstrual cycles still can get stress fractures, and that's a really challenging uh, group of people to, to treat. Uh, also, the approach may be multidisciplinary, so this can involve physicians, uh, registered dietitians, and uh, potentially mental health professionals So Again, uh, this is revised this idea was revised again by the International Olympic Committee in two thousand and fourteen to discuss relative energy deficiency in sports. Um, And this is basically just a broader and more comprehensive description of this phenomenon. Um, And also it's not limited to female athletes. So male athletes can be affected, obviously not um, from the menstrual cycle standpoint, but with low low bone mineral density um, and stress injuries. And so there is a screening tool available. Um, There are actually, a lot of these questions are found on the standard pre-participation evaluation form. Uh, So just, If you ever go through the questionnaire part of that form, um, there are questions about if you limit your diet or limit what you eat, if you're worried about your weight or how you look, are you trying to lose weight? Um, And so I think making sure that we screen for uh, any sort of menstrual dysfunction or disordered eating is important. And then educating our athletes on the uh, necessity of proper nutrition is a huge component to dealing with this. So just a word about stress fractures. Um, looking at a prospective study of, sorry, I can move this. Okay, okay. looking at a prospective study of adolescent and young adults, um, the overall incidence risk uh, for stress fractures or stress injury was 10%. Uh, but if you had one risk factor or one component of the female athlete triad, then that risk increased to 10 to 20, or 15 to 20%. And then from there, it sort of skyrockets. Oh no! oh, there we go. Um, so two to three risk factors uh, or components of the female athlete triad increase that risk to 29 to 50%. And the biggest combinations were if you have low bone mineral density and you're exercising in a structured manner more than 12 hours a week, then that risk of stress injury went up to 29%. And if you were exercising more than 12 hours per week in a leanness activity, again, an aesthetic-type sport um, with dietary restraint, self-imposed or otherwise, um, that risk went up to 46%. So now we're going to just move over to the ACL. So... ACL injuries, um, overall, the estimate is between 150 to 300,000 ACL injuries annually, and there are many, many sex-based differences, and this is one area that there is quite a bit of research um, differentiating female athletes from males. So female athletes are more likely than males to tear, uh, so even though the overall incidence uh, of ACL injuries is h- Higher, the overall number is higher in males because of increased sport participation. Um, females are 1.6-fold, uh, have a 1.6-fold greater rate per athletic exposure. So each time they go out for practice or a game is an athletic exposure um, in high school. And the peak incidence is, again, our, our um, adolescent or uh, high school female athlete population. Female athletes are also more likely to re And some of the risks that have been teased out are those younger than 25 and those with smaller graft sizes. So I'll get into graft choice later. Um, But in general, uh, if you have a small, if you reconstruct a small ACL, um, then their likelihood of tearing goes up or re tearing. Um, Females are also more likely to tear their contralateral side. So this is something that we counsel all of our patients about. Once you tear one of your ACLs, a lot of our focus is going to be on not letting them tear the other side. Um, for female athletes, greater than 70% of these injuries result from non-contact injuries. So that's a big difference from our male athletes. And female athletes are also more likely to not return to sport after an ACL injury. So if anybody was an Olympic addict like I am, uh, we actually watched Abby Diagostino tear her ACL on live. TV during uh, the last Summer Olympics. So what are the differences? So we divide the, the reasons for why this is such a female problem uh, into non-modifiable risk factors and modifiable risk factors. So the non-modifiable risk factors are the ones that we really can't change or probably we can surgically but no one's gonna go through and fix all of the issues. Um, so Some of the issues are that females tend to have more femoral anteversion, which is turn in at the hips. Um, And this is usually compensated with with external tibial torsion, meaning that our feet turn out. So to keep those feet pointing forward, even though the femurs are turned in, the tibias are turned out. Um, Females also tend to have more uh, ankle and foot pronation. Female athletes tend to have more underlying laxity um, there, it does seem to be a hormonal factor, so there are spikes in ACL tears depending on where you're at in your menstrual cycle. No one's really been able to tease out yet why that is or what exactly that means. Um, females in general also have just a smaller native ACL. They have a narrower femoral notch, and there does certainly seem to be a component of genetics. So our modifiable risk factors arguably maybe more important and that's good because these are things that we can try to change. So the biggest ones that we talk about and a lot of the work that's been done in the uh, Center for Motion Analysis here at Connecticut Children's is looking at mechanics and landing mechanics. Um, So in general, females have very poor landing mechanics. Um, We tend to have quad dominance, which means that the quadriceps are stronger than the hamstrings, um, which means that the force going across the knee and pulling the tibia forward when we land is higher. Uh, Females also tend to land on a straighter knee and then we tend to do this. So this is the hip dip. So we drop the contralateral hip when we land um, and drop that knee into valgus. This is certainly not limited to females. There are certainly male athletes that do this. Um, but discussing uh, treatment options. So there's a lot of different options right now for ACL. Um, ACL repair is really uh, kind of a newer, well, revisited topic that's coming up. So uh, previously we tried to just repair sew the ACL back together and early attempts at that failed miserably. Um, But again, now we have cooler toys, um, more technology. Uh, And so this is being revisited, hopefully in a study here (laughs) at Connecticut Children's. Uh, But uh, basically the idea is that um, it seems like the the issue with the ACL is the healing. So because it's inside the knee, um, there's poor healing potential um, due to the joint fluid and the factors that sort of clean up any attempt that your body makes to heal this. Uh, And so right now uh, we've had decent success with uh, repairing avulsion type injuries. So if you actually sort of tear the ACL off of the femur, um, then there's a way to put some stitches in and get that uh, sort of plugged back into where it was and getting that to heal. Um, there's also a lot of news and you'll uh, it sort of hit mainstream media a couple of years ago up at Boston that they're working on what's called the bear trial, which is... Um, essentially doing a repair but coding the repair in a, in a matrix that will allow it to heal. Um, that's still an ongoing study, it's in phase three but currently on hold because they ran out of matrixes. So our sort of gold standard or current, uh, current plan for most patients um, is ACL reconstruction. So pediatric ACLs are increasingly more common um, Basically, in the older textbooks, we were told that kids didn't tear their ACLs, and that probably was more true um, than it is now. Uh, but nowadays, kids are participating, particularly that are young males, are participating in contact sports at a much younger age. So I moved up here from Virginia. There are five-year-olds playing padded tackle football, uh, which and I'm sure the same is true in Texas. Um, I don't know what it's like up here in Connecticut, but uh, again, you know, these, these kids are participating in these sports younger and younger. And so they're getting these adult injuries that we always said that they didn't get. Um, and so you know, the, the options for uh, fixing this differs with the amount of growth remaining. So uh, as previously, most kids were made to wait until they uh, finished growing in order to have their ACL reconstruction. Um, there have been multiple good studies showing that that is probably the wrong answer. Um, those kids will go on. A, it's really hard to slow a kid down, tell them that they can't participate in sports. Um, B, they will go on to tear their meniscus and uh, injure their cartilage. Uh, and so the, uh, the the long-term effects are much more severe. And so now uh, part of what we as a field of pediatric sports medicine uh, have done is been able to offer kids options for if if you are very young and need to have an ACL reconstruction, there's ways to get around it. So uh, basically, we divide our our patients up into those that have more than two years of growth remaining, uh, and then less than two years of growth remaining. So with more than two years of growth remaining, we generally avoid the growth plates. So the The problem with the adult uh, ACL reconstruction is that there are growth plates at the proximal tibia and distal femur that we need to respect. So uh, there is, an option to avoid them altogether and do what's called an extra fysial or physeal sparing uh, procedure where we actually wrap the IT band. So this is a section of the IT band, um, and we take that and we wrap it and bring it through the knee and sew it down to the tibia so it acts like a uh, an ACL. It is non-anatomic, so it doesn't sit exactly where the native ACL would sit, um, but uh, Overall results from this surgery have actually been incredibly successful. And part of the reason why we think that is is because you're actually adding a second uh, ligament reconstruction here when you tether the IT band uh, up to the femur. Uh, the other option is to do an all epiphyseal reconstruction, which means to stay in below the growth plates. Uh, and so we put our, we still drill bone tunnels, but bring our graft. Uh, at sort of sharper angles in order to miss the growth plates. Um, When kids have less than two years of growth remaining, then we tend to go with a more adult-style reconstruction. We know that we can drill smaller tunnels through the growth plates, um, but as long as we don't put bone across them, then we're not going to cause the growth arrest. So um, for these kids, we tend to do all soft tissue graft, um, which for them means usually a hamstring, or now we can use a quadriceps tendon and not take any bone. Mm-hmm. If you're skeletally mature, which honestly most of the, the adolescent female athletes that we're seeing are, um, because again, females mature faster than males, uh, then really you're at a dealer's choice. So it comes down to surgeon preference and probably depending on who you talk to or what surgery we like to do, um, you'll get a different answer. Obviously we try and base our decisions on evidence. Um, And so a lot of that is the work that we're doing in our pediatric research and sports medicine society um, and other groups to try to get bigger data on kids so that we can give them the best uh, advice. So there is uh, options to do allograft, which is cadaver tissue. Um, In general, most of us will not recommend those to young athletes. Um, sometimes we use them in revision situations, but in a primary situation, um, we know that this has been shown to have a much higher rate of re-injury or re-tear than using um, sorry, autographed or um, the native tissue. After that, sort of the most common um, adult reconstruction uh, traditionally was bone patellar tendon bone uh, which is taking the central portion of the patellar tendon out with a piece of bone on either side. So a piece of bone from the kneecap, piece of bone from the tibia. Um, The benefits of this are the size of the graft. So anytime we're taking a piece of something we can select how much of it we'd like to take um, so we can get bigger grafts. And as we said before uh graft size is directly correlated to uh, the risk of re-tearing that graft. Um, the problem or the downside to, to BTB is uh, harvest site pain, so um, a lot of people who have had this surgery will tell you that they have some, te- some anterior knee pain or achiness that doesn't really go away. They can have pain with kneeling um, and there is a risk of patella fracture. Uh, recently, a lot of people have then sort of swung over to hamstring tendons. Um, So harvesting the hamstrings is much more cosmetic. So BTB requires an incision right down the front of the knee. Uh, Hamstring tendon is taken from a small incision on the side of the knee. Um, So it's much more cosmetic. And again, when I'm having this conversation with patients, um, you kind of go over the pluses and minuses about anything. Um, We as pediatric sports medicine doctors will basically be able to do any of these procedures. Um, they all have good and bad points, and certainly we can give our preferences or recommendations. Um, but again, the evidence or the really hard evidence on graft choices is, is still fairly limited. Um, but again, there seems to be a trend towards the risk of re for hamstring tendons. Um, one of the downsides to hamstrings is that you don't get to choose what size your graft is. So unlike... Again, cutting a portion of something where we can say we want nine millimeters or 10 millimeters of this hamstrings, uh, you you harvest them. And however big they are, we fold them up to try to make them bigger. Um, But however big they are is how big they are. And there's no changing that. Um, And in in athletes that are shorter or more petite, um, they can be small and they can be short. So there's only so many times you can fold it. Um, Also arguably, and I think one of the reasons why uh, many of us have started changing our graph choice is that um, if we're talking about our female athletes specifically and we're talking about quad dominance as a reason why we're having ACL injuries in the first place. um, And again, quad dominance means that your quadriceps are much stronger than your hamstrings um, then if you take the hamstrings and you're making this worse. Um, So probably the, New hot topic on ACLs is the quadricep tendon. Um, seems to be right now the best of both worlds. There's still very sort of early data coming out on uh, the use of this in the pediatric and in the adult population. Um, again, we get to choose what size it is. Um, there seems to be less harvest site pain. So because you're not taking out of the tibial tubercle, um, there seems to be less pain. Anybody can have a little bit of uh, harvest site pain no matter what graft you choose. Um, but again, there, uh, there's a trend to try to go towards the front of the knee, especially in female soccer players. Um, and so the, the quadricep uh, tendon can accomplish that. But at the end of the day, no matter what we do, very, uh, some very disheartening studies have come out recently saying that in our, uh, in our young population, uh, within two years of ACL reconstruction, our re-injury rate is 29%. Um, and that includes this ipsilateral or same knee as well as the contralateral knee. Um, and female athletes are more likely to tear their contralateral ACL than their male counterparts. So there's really limited data about um, graph choice and what truly is best and outcomes. Uh, so a lot of our focus has come into ACL injury prevention. Um, and so with this, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of pediatric sports surgeons have slowed down their return to sport timeline. So I will say when I started practice seven and a half years ago, um, I let most of my ACLs go back to sports around Five to six months, um, and now I think most of the time when I have that initial conversation, I'm saying nine months to a year, and hey, we'll see. There's no pressure. Um, a second injury is devastating to, particularly to a high school athlete, um, regardless of if it's the same knee or the other knee. It takes a huge hit um, mentally uh, when they have that first injury, and the second one is is that much worse. Um, so we modify the modifiable risk factors. So looking at our post-operative physical therapy, a lot of what we're doing towards the end is working on those strength and working on ACL prevention. Um, and so there are ACL prevention programs, that's a topic for another day, but um, basically there are programs out there that can be incorporated into um, workouts for uh, our athletes that can help them uh, to prevent these injuries in the first place. And as much as we love doing surgery, I think most of us would like to probably put ourselves out of business a little bit. Um, so I'm gonna move a little bit faster through the rest of this as we're getting towards the end here. Um, so multi-directional shoulder instability. Uh, so talking about in shoulder instability, there's really two uh, types. One is sort of your routine garden variety, anterior shoulder dislocation. Um, and then the other type is a little bit more nebulous. So multi-directional shoulder instability, um, basically, the, shoulder, the stability of the shoulder depends on uh, multiple things. So there's bony anatomy, there's soft tissue restraints, and then there's also dynamic muscular stabilization. Um, and so this is a, a nice image from a, a paper that was written looking at the differences between ma- male and female glenoids. So when you're looking just at the cup side of the, the uh, shoulder, the white image is, uh, is the average female glenoid and the darker one is the average male glenoid. So. Um, When we're talking about multi-directional instability, this is symptomatic subluxation or dislocation of the shoulder in in more than one direction. Um, And so uh, this comes into play with patients that have generalized hypermobility, Ehrlich-Danlos syndrome, Marfans, and also those that have sort of repetitive microtrauma to the shoulder stabilizers. So think about swimmers, gymnasts, wrestlers who are over and over repeatedly putting their uh, shoulders into compromised positions. Um, so again, in females, there is a generalized uh, increase in joint laxity, um, and there's we know that females have smaller glenoids, so this puts uh, our female athletes more at risk for multidirectional shoulder instability, um, and well, at least we think they do. So there's really no information on this. Um, one of the biggest multi or uh, systematic reviews looking at multidirectional shoulder, actually no mention whatsoever um, of sex differences between the patients that were treatment. so there, there's really nothing about and looking at our patient population, you know, it's sort of common sense to think that we see this more in female athletes, um, but that still remains to be seen. So again, this is an area that I think there needs to be more, more work in um, and we need to really try to separate out the differences between males and females. I'm going to skip through some of this. Um, So treatment options for multidirectional shoulder instability. Um, Basically, uh, we were told back when I trained that it was physical therapy, physical therapy, and physical therapy. Um, I think we still uh, believe that a a good rehab program is important um, to work on scapula motion and shoulder position, work on core strengthening, rotator cuff, um, and... uh, In general, we say people should try at least six months of physical therapy. Um, If anyone's ever tried to get their patient into physical therapy with a 30-visit limit, um, you know that six months is difficult. Um, And so that's not to say that we jump to surgery, but um, there certainly are times when surgery is appropriate. Um, there's really two different types of surgeries that we do for this. So one is arthroscopic, where we basically tighten up the capsule. Um, So as I tell my patients, it's basically like taking up fabric. So this is the glenoid here. The labrum is this ring around it. And uh, these are sutures that basically pull up the the capsule tissue to sort of decrease the space. Um, And then a little bit more aggressive uh, would be the open inferior capsular shift. So just really it's an open procedure where we take the capsule, Cut it and then sort of fold it over itself to make it tighter. Um, I would say, uh, you know, again, there's very limited uh, data. There's studies that show that arthroscopic capsular placation um, works just fine, uh, but I think your patient choice is very important. Um, so if you have somebody that just has significant underlying ligamentous laxity, um, there's a good chance that they're going to fail that procedure. Going back to traumatic uh, shoulder instability, this is caused by a shoulder dislocation. The good news is this is one of the few times that males have it worse. So initial injury two times greater in male athletes and recurrent injury, one of the major risk factors is being a male. Um, briefly, femoral tabular impingement uh, around the hip. So there's basically, um, we know that bony anatomy and abnormalities around the hip can cause injury to the labrum. Um, and so there's really three types of this um, that we talk about. There's CAM, so the femur can have an extra bump on it, which is the top image. Um, the uh, alternative is that the acetabulum or the socket can be overcovered, um, and that's the bottom image, or there can be a combination of the two. There's a lot of sex-based differences that have come out around hip arthroscopy. So males are more likely to have CAM lesions and that top image is typical what a male picture would look like. They have uh, larger lesions. They have, in general, less range of motion of the hip, um, whereas females can have more subtle findings. So their bony anatomy does not look as exciting. but they can still have symptoms. And part of that is that females tend to have more antiversion of their hips. Um, they're more likely to have dysplasia of the hip. And in general, females can have minimal bony anatomy, but can have worse function, um, lower activity related to their hip pain. And uh, part of that is because in general, they have greater range of motion of the hip. So they're able to put their hip um, into places that most men cannot. Treatment is similar. Um, And so we treat these with hip arthroscopy, labral repair, um, managing the bony uh, deformity, and managing the joint capsule. Um, And the good news is that outcomes-wise, there's no, some of the studies have shown no differences between sexes and uh, and patients graded less than 45. So even though um, the females come in looking worse, um, outcomes with treatment are similar. Um, Briefly, concussion. um, Similar story to hip impingement. So overall, uh, this is an understudied issue in female athletes, but the overall incidence rate, so the number of concussions is, again, higher in male athletes, um, but the rate of occurrence is higher in female athletes, um, especially when you look at match sports. So soccer, basketball, lacrosse, um, again, injuries tend to be um, more common in females. Um, Symptom burden seems to be higher in females, so they tend to have more severe symptoms. They have greater duration of symptoms and greater cognitive defects. Um, When you're looking head-to-head at symptoms, uh, both males and females tend to report headaches, impaired concentration, dizziness, but um, females uh, report significantly more sleep disturbance. And there's a lot of theories about why this is. Um, Anatomic differences in the neck strength of females and head mass. Um, cerebral blood flow. There does, again, seem to be hormonal differences with estrogen playing a part after brain trauma. Um, And some of it really is thought to be a reporting bias. So, um, you know, females may be more likely just to report that they're having symptoms or had a concussion as opposed to the male who feels pressure to not report and get back out on the field. And then finally, my quick plug for early sports specialization. Um, So youth sports in general has become a Massive industry estimated at 9 to $15 billion. Um, Most kids now are playing on travel teams, they play on indoor leagues, they do showcases and private coaching. um, And the general recreational leagues are on the decline. And unfortunately, what this means is less opportunity for those that have limited income and we're losing the inclusivity of sports. Um, So Talking points um, for our patients. Um, so early sports specialization, what is it? We define it as a prepubertal athlete, so around age 12 or younger, playing one or more sports at the exclusion of other sports, meaning Johnny has to quit baseball so he can play lacrosse all year round, um, and playing year round, which is more than eight months out of the year. We know that early sports specialization causes more overuse injuries, it causes more burnout, It causes increased um, withdrawal from sports or the risk of quitting altogether. And also the anxiety and the pressure that the kids see uh, from their, maybe due to the pressure from the coaches uh, or their parents. And we know that this is detrimental to the long-term physical and mental health of uh, these athletes. So one of the things I hear all the time these kids come in and you know, mom and dad mentions that you know, they need to get a college scholarship if they wanna to go to college and they need to get that athletic scholarship. And the reality is that only 2% of uh, high school athletes will go on to play college sports. So uh, probably not the place to be putting all your eggs. Um, we know that multi athletes, so those that play multiple sports have actually better success at the adult level. So that would be the collegiate or professional level. They have better movement patterns. So, doing multiple sports rather than doing one sport, even as a little kid, um, means that we have better movement patterns in the way that they move. Um, They don't overdevelop one particular muscle group, um, and they also have decreased injury rates. And maybe, again, more importantly, they develop a lifelong love of physical activity and sports. There are some exceptions. Um, and most notably, those tend to be the ones where your peak performance is very early on in life, so gymnastics, figure skating, dance um, most of those athletes, if they 're going to make it to um, say the elite level um, they, they do specialize very early, so most of the gymnasts that are that are getting up to the elite level are you know practicing thirty to forty hours a week, um, even as young as age ten. But what do we tell our patients so um, I would argue that, you know, put in a plug to encourage them to play multiple sports as long as possible. Ideally, not in the same season. So this, this problem is not solved by letting them play three different sports at the same time. Um, They should be allowed to take time off. So one or two days a week where they don't have a sport um, and perhaps two to three months out of the year. You should watch for burnout. So are they still enjoying it? Do they start dreading going to practice? Um, Are they having more injuries? Some of that some of the injuries may be legitimately because they're overtraining, and some of them may be because something else is going on. And then try to watch for overscheduling. Again, as Dave mentioned, I have a three month old, so I'm not in this yet, but my, uh, a lot of my college friends will tell me that their nine and 10 year olds are now being asked to drop all their other sports to play a single sport. Um, and they're overscheduled, there's something every single day of the week, if not multiple things on each day. Um, And the bottom line is that kids need time to be a kid and they need to have free play, which actually develops, again, their motor skills better. Um, And in general, there are sex-based differences in our our, uh, injuries. We need to do better studies um, and make sure that our tools for validating these are are equal. And there's my little guy. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you, very, very informative. We have time for questions for Chris, do you want to do? Yeah, I just wanted to say,
2: um, (laughs) came up together. I just wanted to uh, let everybody know that I'm very happy that uh, Allison has joined the Department of Surgery. She has brought a different skill set with some of the focus on female athletes. And I know the Department of Ortho as well as uh, sports is happy that she's here too. I think the only thing I have is is some of your recommendations for female athletes having uh, three children that are all within this age group, it is very, Common for the coaches to um, really push on uh, the schedules and being a practice all the time and concentrating on one sport. So I hear what you're saying about the different ones. Do you have any kind of recommendations you give to some of the females to think about when they're doing the sports like how to hold their hips or their knees or because I've seen none of that coaching, at least in my personal experience. Yes. So there uh, there are actually, uh, particularly in soccer, probably is one of the more well-developed, but there are um, injury prevention programs or things that you can incorporate. So FIFA, um, it used to be FIFA 11, I think it's up to FIFA 12 now, are basic movements that um, that coaches can incorporate into their warmups um, or players can incorporate into their warm-ups to try to decrease their um, risk of injury. Um, there are options uh, now, and I believe that our physical therapy offers uh, sort of an ACL prevention uh, classes for people. So I, in a perfect world, we'd get to them before, um, so I think getting out into the community, doing education, going to these these women's teams, and saying, "Hey, listen, you know, these are things that you can do." Um, but I think a lot of it's education.
0: Great, great presentation. Can you comment on, uh, especially for soccer, for you know, heading the ball? I mean, some of the some of the leagues have now. Uh, it's really for the younger crowd. Have actually ban the uh, heading the ball, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Um,
2: yeah, so there are uh, very discreet rules now about uh, at what age athletes can start doing that. Um, and so I think you know trying to follow the recommendations or making sure that the coaches are aware of the current recommendations out there as far as at what age they can start. Um, a lot of the concussions aren't so much the head hitting the ball, it's two people going up for the ball at the same time and hitting each other. Um, and so I think you know the the, the prevalence of concussion. And again, my I have fabulous colleagues that deal a lot more with concussion than I do. Um, but they uh, but th- this is a huge issue.
1: No, no, <laughs> no, no. Just that that I think you need, you need to separate concussion from cumulative trauma, uh, and that's I think where the changes have occurred. Uh, the concussion rate of heading the ball um, is extremely low 0 in, at, at the World Cup level. But the collisions, of course, can cause injury. But it's the cumulative trauma of our, our pediatric athlete that we have to Amazing. worry about. So the repetitive non-concussive blows—that's what the concern is. That's why the rules are changing, because now some studies are showing that that has a long-term effects. I, I'm sorry. I
2: just, no, <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, really, admit. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there, uh, you know, there are certain genes, or at least one gene that's been uh, associated with, you know, with ACL injury, and and those obviously tend to be the collagen um, disorders. Uh, I don't know that we have enough information yet, but it certainly uh, doesn't hurt to ask, you know, if if mom or siblings have torn their ACLs, because you, you tend to see um, this running in families. And I think, again, if, if you can identify those people and then maybe help get them into an ACL prevention type program, or at least make them aware of that, then I think perhaps we can, we can help stop this. <laughs> Yeah, the big question, are you going to let your son play football? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know about football, but again, he's, you know, by the time that happens, I don't know where we'll be. Um, this is evolving so quickly right now um, as far as, you know, thoughts on, on these collision sports that uh, we'll have to see where where he's at. But I have a feeling that it's not in his genetics to, to be football. <laughs> We'll see. He can play lacrosse.
0: Thank you very much.